We turn again in God's Word to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up at verse 12 and continue to read through chapter 4, verse 1. These instructions then, commands as to how we are to live as God's people. He has, prior to this, said that uh, in verses 1 through 11, what we are to put off as those who are now sanctified in Jesus Christ or being sanctified in Christ. So we put off certain things, but then we have to clothe ourselves with other things. And that's where he begins. And then how do those things that clothing of righteousness, how does that affect relationships? Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As far as the reading of God's word, let's bow in prayer again. Our loving Heavenly Father, we are reminded by this passage that we too were once slaves to sin. Father, we are so grateful for the work of Christ that have broke that bonds of sin. And Father, that we are now truly free. Father, we pray that we would reflect on this. Father, not to continue to beat ourselves up, but Father, to begin to understand the depths of what Christ has done, the love that he's bestowed upon us. And Father, we pray this morning, if anyone here is still a slave to sin, Father, we beseech you and we beg you this morning, Father, to break those bonds. Father, that they too would know the freedom of Christ. Father, always we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So this is one of those passages that it would be easy to skip if we did not accept or 
practice expository preaching, which is the systematic of way of going through a passage. I would imagine that there would be many of you who, if I simply started, well, we're going to skip over the rest of chapter 3 and we're going to get into chapter 4, are going to say, wait a minute, why are you skipping over this section about bond servants and masters? And some of you might be tempted to say, well, I probably know why Pastor Bob doesn't want to preach on that. It's not just the fact of we're in the congregation, but it's that camera in the back there, and that video is going to go out, and who knows who's going to nab onto this thing. And yeah, in the environment in which we live, in the culture in which we live, who wants to preach on slaves and masters? It's a pretty, eh, it's a pretty iffy passage in the day and age in which we live. But because of our practice, we can't do that. We, we can't just look past it. This too is the Word of God. This too is the Word of God that is breathed out, not just for the Church of Colossa, but for you and I today as well. God wants us to know this. If this were simply some limited passage, if this were just some sort of geographical situation, then it would have disappeared like other letters that Paul wrote that we have no knowledge of. We know there's some letter out there that he wrote to the church of Laodicea, but we don't have it. Why? Because perhaps God was looking at it and saying, well, that's for the church of Laodicea. I want my word to be a word for all time. That's what my inspired word is. It's for all time for all circumstances, for all situations, even in the situation in which we live today. Now, if you've been clueless, if you've been tuned out of our society over the course of the last two months, it's hard to find, and it will be difficult to find, any statutes of any Confederate soldiers or generals remaining around. We've had the controversy in Allendale over two soldiers, a, a Union and a Confederate soldier, which obviously all comes back to the issue of slavery and how people were treated and dealt with, and yet here we find God's Word speaking to this very subject. How do you and I, as believers in Christ, deal with this? I'm sure you've probably heard, okay? If not, once again, you're not paying close attention, the charge that as Christians, we accept racism because the Bible says slavery is acceptable. Now, if you follow the logic through, folks, that means some very hard and difficult days are going to come. Because if we as the church are promoting racist ideas that we believe come from the Word of God, it's going to be some hard and difficult days. So this text is very important. We need to know what God is saying to us. But that's the point. 
We need to know what God is saying. We don't need to know what commentators on liberal news networks think God says. Or we don't need to know what some liberal theologian misinterprets the text to say. Nor do we need to leave it to our own try to figure out. God tells us. We need to know what God says. So that's why we're here this morning, digging into this part of this passage, to know what it is that God says about this issue of slavery and how Paul speaks to this church at Colossae regarding the issue of slavery and what the application of that is then to us today. That's a lot. I may not get through it. So we'll bear with it if we have to go into the next Lord's Day. But we need to start where the Bible starts to deal with the issue of slavery. And that's in the Old Testament. Okay? We, we can't just dive in here okay, and say, well, this is what God says about slavery. No, no, you have to go to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we find that there is a term that is used to describe what we today would use the term slave. The Hebrew term is evet. Evet. The Hebrew term, as it is used in the Old Testament, as you find it in the law, in the treatment of slaves, means a position that one is in, in one is in a work position that one is in in which somebody is dependent upon another so your work is dependent upon somebody else giving you the work to do that's the meaning of the term when, when we come across it in our English Bibles, you're going to find that that term is interpreted by two words. Same Hebrew word. In some passages, the Hebrew word in your English Bible comes off as servant. In another passage, it comes off as slave. Go with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. Go down to verse 9. 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 9. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. Sabbath day, verse 10, is a Sabbath to the Lord and your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. The word, the Hebrew word there is that word, evet. So in that passage, our English Bibles translate it as servant. Some of you might have male servant, female servant, maid servant, whatever. 
right? Okay, now, turn over to the next chapter, chapter 21. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, guess what the Hebrew word is? Evet. Same word. So the same Hebrew word is used to say servant in Exodus 20. Same Hebrew word in our English Bibles comes out as slave in Exodus chapter 21. Very next chapter. Same author, Moses. Same context. It's not like this is 20 years later. It's not like, you know, things have changed. We're, we're in the same situation. So what does that mean? What it means is this. We interpret a word that we find in the Bible through the culture and through our history of today. Rather than letting the word define itself. So what we're doing oftentimes particularly with a word like this, is we read back into it. Oh, slave. They had Hebrew slaves. Oh, they were beaten. They were in chains. Oh, and we're seeing roots all over again, and we're seeing Israelites haul other Israelites off, and we're seeing them haul people off with chains and beatings and whippings and so on. Why? Because when we read the word slave, we can only think. Our, our situation is we interpret the word slave from between 1800 to 1860. That's the slave that we understand. But the Bible understands slave not in 1860 terms. The Bible understands the word slave as servant. And that servant and slave are, in a sense, synonymous with one another. They are not distinct terms. That's why Exodus 20 can say maidservant, male servant. Exodus 21 can say slave. Because it's the same idea. It's the same connotation. It's the same point that is being made. Now, if we were to take the time and to go through all the laws that deal with Hebrew servants slash slaves, this is what we'd find. So if you turn your sermon line over, there's a little chart, okay? So in the Old Testament, the condition of a slave slash servant was as follows. Did a Hebrew slave servant get holidays? Yes. We just read it, didn't we? Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. Six days shalt thou labor. Who cannot work? Your male servant or your female servant. They may not work. You were to give them off. Whenever there is a Sabbath... Whenever you as an Israelite keep a Sabbath, whether it be the seventh day of the week 
or whether it be one of the holidays, the Passover, the feast that, that they had, whenever a Sabbath is, your servant slash slave is to have that holiday as well. You were to supply them by law with enough food. You were to allow them legal redress. In other words, if the master, for example, knocked out the tooth of a slave, the slave had legal rights to get their freedom because of that. In other words, they could go to court. A slave had legal rights and legal standing in that way. They were protected sexually. Masters were not allowed to use their slaves for sexual purposes. That was against the law of the Old Testament. They were not allowed to be kidnapped. You were not allowed to put them in chains. You were not allowed to torture them. You were allowed no physical abuse of your servant slash slave. And then there's one more. Servants, slaves, were allowed an inheritance. They could receive an inheritance. This is what God's Word teaches. This is the situation that as the Israelites came out of Egypt, where this was not practiced. This was not their situation in Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. God gives them his law, and in his law, he says, this is the way you are to treat your servant slave. Not your slave of 1860, but your servant, who is employed... mm, who is working off a debt? Hmm, probably. Your servant, who is under your care, is under your household, is under your responsibility, so much so that God in Genesis chapter 17 says to Abraham, now, take all of your servants, your male servants, circumcise them because they too are part of my covenant. See, that understanding, see, if we look at it from the truly biblical viewpoint, the biblical lens, is a far cry different than what we find in 1860. The problem is nobody's willing to sit through the entire argument and presentation. Everybody just wants to take what they know. They want to become wise in their own eyes. They want to take what they know and say, well, you see, it says back here in in Exodus that there were slaves. So you see, they were doing the same thing. No, no. God was guarding. God was protecting. God was keeping 
God was issuing laws for their protection. So what about the first century? Well, into which Paul is writing Colossians. What's the situation here? Well, we're, we're, we're now in the Roman world, aren't we? We're, we're not under the Leviticus law anymore. We're not in Israel. We're, we're not under the law of the Ten Commandments. We're not under those provisions. We're not under that protection. We're now in Roman territory. What were things like in Roman territory? Look at the chart. Under Romans, did slaves, doulos, have holidays? No. Did they get enough food? No. Did they have legal redress? Could they, could they take some legal action against their, their master who mistreated them? No. Were they protected sexually? No. Were they kidnapped? Yes. Were they in chains? Yes. Were they tortured? Yes. Was there physical abuse? Yes. Could they receive an inheritance? No. That's the Roman world. Historians say that in the city of Rome, at the time Paul is writing this, probably one-third of the population were slaves. One-third of that. But Paul's not writing a letter to, to Romans, is he? He's writing a letter to the city of Colossae, to the church, I should say, at Colossae. Now, why is he writing about servants and slaves and masters? Why, why is he writing about that? Because there is a situation in Colossae. The whole Philemon Onesimus situation is in Colossae. The likelihood is, is that many of the people who are actually part of the church of Colossae are actually servants, slaves. They're under the Roman system. They're under that way. They're not under this protection of Leviticus. This, this is a whole different ballgame. Things have changed. And most likely, the reason you have so much about the bondservant, which is verse 22, all the way through 25, and then you have one verse about masters, is most likely because there are very few masters in the church and there are many bondservants in the church. Therefore, the weight, who's Paul going to address? A couple of people? Yes, he addresses them. He deals with them. But the majority of these folks are in this slave, do lost situation. Therefore, because that's the Greek word now, that we have not only a change of words, we have a change of practice going on. So in this church of Colossae, here comes Paul. In this kind of environment, in this kind of circumstance, with the rules all different, the laws all different than what they were in Old Testament Israel, most of these people have no clue 
about the rules and laws governing slaves. Because they didn't grow up in that, first generation. Paul now comes and he says, boy, I've told you what it means to be a Christian wife. I've told you what it means to be a Christian husband. I've told you what it means to be a Christian child. I've told you what it means to be a Christian father. Now I need to tell you what it means to be a Christian slave. A doulos. Someone who is owned by another. Someone who is the property of another. Someone who has an owner. How are you supposed to live as a Christian in that circumstance? This is what you're to do. As a sanctified Christian, Paul says, obey. Obey them. Obey your master. Obey your owner. And obey them not just when they're watching. Obey them not just when their eyes are upon you. And then as soon as they turn their back and go off somewhere, then you become Mr. Lazy. And you don't do anything. Or you do it half-heartedly. Or you do it uncaringly. You don't do your best. Because he's not watching. If he's watching, if his eyes are upon you, See, there's a difference here between being a man-pleaser or a God-pleaser. Man-pleasers are those who would be only concerned to do the right thing when they're being watched and are under observance. A God-pleaser is one who does the right thing regardless of who is watching. And that's what Paul tells them to do. You need to be a God-pleaser. By obeying your master. And it comes then with the same prohibition we have about wives. You don't do that which is illegal, immoral. Right? You have to take your stand. Fathers, children as well as we spoke about that. Same situation carries here. Obedience in the Lord. That's who you are serving. But you have to obey. This is your circumstance. Understanding that obedience to your master is obedience to the Lord. But not only is obedience, you have to work hard. Notice how Paul writes this. Okay? Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. Paul means that by saying you work from the soul. You don't work from the muscles. You don't work from the body. You work from the spiritual. All work for Paul is spiritual work. There's no such thing in, in Paul's way of thinking of us as Christians of working in a physical way. Of course you do it physically, but it's always to arise out of the soul. It's never economic work, it's soul work. It's from your relationship to the Lord. 
So to these slaves in the Roman system, Paul says, obey and work hard. He repeats almost verbatim the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. As we've seen, these two chapters, these two books go side by side in that regard. That gives us reason to pause, doesn't it? Hmm, interesting. Paul isn't leading some sort of revolution. Paul isn't changing the whole of society as Christians. No. Now, Paul understands the way that you change society, the way you change culture, is not by revolution, is not by riot, but by one individual life lived for the glory of God at a time. Hear that, believer. We far too often as the church have given way to the political way of dealing with these matters. And we've said, well, it doesn't really matter how I live as an individual. What matters is, am I part of the right organization? Have I signed the right petition? No, what matters to Paul in your sanctification is this. If Christ is living in you, then it better be seen. You change the culture and society by your individual, sanctified, spirit-filled, Christ-filled life as you encounter individuals, as you encounter those who are hard and difficult, those who are frustrating to deal with, those obstacles, those enemies, those situations that are so hard to deal with and we just want to lash out and Paul says, no, 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 no. Be clothed with humility. Be clothed with love. And that sanctifying work of the Spirit, individual by individual by individual by individual. This is the way society and culture is transformed. That's what the church did. Why did the church do it? Because they understood the word of the Lord. Yeah, we want everything to change. Meanwhile, the stuff and pollution that comes out of our mouths is hideous. It's unsanctified speech. It's unsanctified attitude. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise, that my whole being may proclaim thy glory and thy praise. Every aspect. See, this is the response that our world needs to hear from us as the church. Lives that have been transformed by Jesus Christ with a passion of sharing the message of how that transformation by God's grace has taken place. 
so that even if you're a doulos, even if you're a slave, even if you belong to someone else, you aren't out there leading some revolution and rebellion. You're living a transformed life. For the glory of God. So that your master may come to know Christ. Did you catch the part that Paul leaves for them? You've got an inheritance. This was unheard of. They're slaves in a Roman system. You don't get an inheritance. Oh, yes, you do. Your inheritance is in Christ. Your inheritance is that of eternal life. That you shall receive. That is yours. So don't show any partiality. Don't obey some and not others. Christ will bring that under judgment. Masters, masters, be fair. Matthew chapter 18, is it? This, this man comes before the king, begging and pleading. Oh, forgive my debt, forgive my debt. And the king, out of Grace and mercy forgives him his debt. The guy leaves the presence of the king and he finds some guy who owes him a few shekels and he beats him up, throws him in prison. How often are we not like this? But hear the instruction into first century. You're a master. You have slaves, you own slaves. Be fair. Be fair about this. Do you understand grace? Do you understand that which you have been given by God? Do you understand that which you're called to? The kindness, the humility, the patience, the meekness. To have that compassionate heart. What do you think, what do you think the slave owner would do? Who's been transformed. By the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. Whose heart is now filled with compassion. You think he's got a whip in his hand? Beating on his slave? And then going to Sunday morning services? You think that's what he's doing? He's being fair. He's understanding God's grace. Masters, treat your bondservant justly and fairly, knowing, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Remember, remember, remember Bill Green a couple of weeks ago, the passage of the centurion, I am the one under authority. Yeah, do you know that? Do you understand that? That you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is asking every single one of these slave owners who are part of the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. He's saying, do you understand? Do you understand how you are to treat these individuals under your authority? And do you understand that you too 
are under authority. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Too far into it to quit now. Romans chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, a servant. Oh, some of you have a little number there. Look at the footnote. A servant. What? A slave. It's the same word in Colossians that we've just been reading. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Did you get that? Did you hear that? See, that centurion understood that he was under authority and under the authority of Christ. Do we, do we like the Apostle Paul, understand that we are under the authority of Christ? Do we understand he is our Lord, our Master, our owner, and that we are but slaves. Well, we should understand it. We sang it as our first hymn before we prayed. Father, I lay my life before you. Do you know what the picture is? See, we might just sing that and say, oh, what a cute little song. I lay my life before you. Jesus, I lay my life. Spirit, I lay my life. Do you know what that means? It means that as a servant... You are bowing with your head down before the almighty God and saying, I am your slave. Think of the hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my voice. Take my money. I'm your slave. Say, well, I don't know about that. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. Verse 20, it's what our brother prayed about before, after we read the passage. This is what Brother Doug read, was thinking of. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things from which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, and notice what they did, and have become what? Slaves of God. Why doesn't Paul in Colossians lead a slave revolt? Because Paul understands that all of us are slaves as believers in Jesus Christ. He understands that we are slaves of God. Master, let me walk with you in lowly paths, service free. Every time you say, Lord, you're saying, Master, you're saying, my owner. Here's my life. I lay it before you. You've bought me. You've purchased me with the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's my life. Take it. Why doesn't he lead a slave revolt? 
Because Paul understands the fact that if we're going to do that, we are in effect throwing off God. My friends, don't get me wrong. That which we found in the New World, that which we find in the 1800s to 1860s, okay, there, there are many who, who sought to treat their slaves according to those, those Old Testament laws. But there were many. There were many who did not. And it needs to be condemned. It was wrong. It was horrific. You can read the list. You can see what it became. Not anything like that which God spoke of. But my friends, don't throw out the beautiful concept that Paul has for us. I was a slave of sin. It was my master. It controlled me. But God has sent me free through the blood of Jesus Christ. To what? Do whatever I want to do? Now I can do and think and feel and say whatever I want to say? No. I'm the slave of God. Here's my life. Take it. Seal it. Here's my heart. Take it. Here's all of me. I'm yours. And my friends, the world, through the work of God's grace, through the power of his spirit in transformed lives, is going to be changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. We so often take the views of this world and interpret your word through that which the world says it says. Father, forgive us as the church for so doing. Breathe on us fresh the truth of your word so that we may live we may live for your glory and for your honor. Lord, we want to serve you. We love you. May your spirit fill us in such a way that our transformed life sheds light in the darkness of the depravity of this world in which we live. And God's people say, Amen.